0: Let's now turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, and we'll read the first 13 verses. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister, According to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory." congregation of our lord jesus christ in uh, chapter 2 especially we have seen the the one, wonderful unity of the church as it is there spoken of as a spiritual temple in which god dwells and that uh, that theme that uh, paul has already begun to uh, speak of is the background to the opening words of our text in verse one where he says, uh, for this reason, in view of this glorious work of Christ in uniting Jew and Gentile together in, uh, one family, uh, fellow citizens with the saints. In, in view of this, for this reason, and then we ask, and then what? For this reason, what? And Paul doesn't really answer that, uh, the rest of the sentence. He, He interrupts himself, it appears, and he really doesn't get back to this introduction until verse 14, where he repeats the words, for this reason, and then he speaks of his prayer for them, or possibly even, he doesn't really return to it until the first verse of chapter 1, where he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, and he was intending from the beginning to say, for this reason, then live out this wonderful life that you have as Christians together in unity and love. And he then moves on to the practical application of the book, beginning at chapter 4. But in any case, there's no doubt that he kind of interrupts himself And you might say that it sounds as if he goes off onto a tangent on a different uh, subject than he originally intended. Well, it's not really a change of subject that Paul then returns to. It's still about the glorious unity of the church. But in a way that is intended to further magnify God, in a way that is intended to show More of the tremendous privilege of grace to be a part of this glorious work of Jesus Christ. The Ephesian believers, and what he says also applies to you and I, have been given to know the mystery of Christ. Mystery, that's language that's repeated again and again in these verses that we're considering tonight. The mystery of Christ. It has been given to the Ephesians and it is given to us to know the fellowship of this mystery, to have a share in this divine masterpiece of the universe, something that he has purposed from eternity, but which is now accomplished in Jesus Christ. And so I hope that by attention to this uh, passage before us, that we will being able to see for ourselves even more clearly our privilege, our privilege in knowing this mystery of which Paul speaks and having a share in its marvelous meaning. Your privilege is knowing the greatest mystery ever. And we need to begin by looking at what Paul really is talking about when he speaks of this mystery. And first of all, we see that it is... Uh, A mystery that has been hidden, but is now revealed. Most people like a mystery. There used to be a program on television called Unsolved Mystery, and it was intriguing for people to learn about these mysterious events that were so difficult to explain, left people wondering. Uh, Knowing mystery, having the answers to mysteries, gives a person a kind of status, you might say. It might even give them a kind of power. And there's a certain claim to a knowledge of mysteries that really involves a kind of devilry. Uh, Think of the wizards, the imaginary wizards or the shamans who have knowledge of secrets and are able to exercise power because they have possession of mysteries that they're able to make use of. Actually, in the first uh, century of the Christian church, there were the rise of what are called mystery cults. And there were there were very many such mystery cults among the Greeks, the cult of Dionysius, among the Phrygians, the cult of Sybil, among the Egyptians, the cult of Isis. Some of these names might be familiar to them. Uh, a, a number of them could be also added. There were these mystery cults, and to be... Uh, a part of these mystery cults involved a kind of initiation into their secrets. And it involved certain ceremonies in which people could join these these groups, these followers of these particular groupings. What did those ceremonies involve? Well, you really don't know until you join. You find out by joining. Then you're initiated into these secrets. And you're sworn to secrecy. Because now you have this inside knowledge. It's often the appeal of the cults today. A claim to a kind of inside knowledge for the initiated to to share, giving them a kind of special status, giving them a sense of purpose and pride in belonging to this group. Well, the Christian faith is not like that. The Christian faith does not involves some kind of esoteric knowledge that only a certain number of people have access to in a way that would minister to our pride and in a way that would uh, set us apart by a secret kind of knowledge that is hidden to others. But yet Paul here speaks of mystery, and he speaks of what was hidden. To make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God. This mystery of Christ, verse 5, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. So this is something that was not made known, but now it is made known. Not by any kind of special magical arts. Not by some kind of conjuring, but it was revealed. It was revealed to the Apostle Paul by God in verse 3. By revelation, he made known to me the mystery. And it's not a revelation that was given to him alone. In verse 5, in other ages it was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Remember, the church is founded upon the prophets and the apostles, their infallible revelation that they received from God. Well, what is this mystery? Well, Paul has already been writing about it, right? As I have briefly written already. And so it concerns the unity of the church. He interrupts himself because he wants to make all see just how marvelous, just how glorious this mystery really is. In verse 6, he basically explains it in terms of its broad contours that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same promise or of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. He is very emphatic. In fact, it would be appropriate to imagine exclamation points following this verse as well as others as he extols the wonder of this revelation, of this, this unity of the, of the church of Jesus Christ, this radical, this unqualified oneness of Jew and Gentile united together. And you see, this radical oneness really explains the contrast between the former hiddenness and now the openness of this revelation. That relates to question number two in the bulletin, if you're interested. And the question is, was this mystery completely unknown in the Old Testament? Well, did the Old Testament teach that in all the, that in the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed? It most certainly did. That was part of the covenant as revealed to Abraham from the very beginning. Does the Old Testament teach that Israel was to be a light unto the nations? Oh, most certainly it does. Do the prophets and the Psalms uh, speak of the nations being called to God? Yes, indeed. We read from Psalm 72 that involves such prophecies. We could turn to many others found in the Psalms and in the prophets. For example, in Psalm 22, a psalm concerning the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow, it says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. Oh, we could go to many such passages that speak of the calling of the nations and the rule of the Messiah over the entire earth. So these things were not hidden in the sense that the inclusion of Gentiles in the worship of God was something altogether unknown. And yet we have to make a distinction between revelation and illumination on such questions. Because there were many, many things that were revealed in the Old Testament scriptures whose full significance was not appreciated and understood by the saints. And we read these things, and it seems obvious to us, but that's because we have the light of the New Testament and the knowledge of their full meaning in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we read Psalm 72, we hear of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we know as disclosed in the New Testament, and we read of His power over the nations, and we read of His grace to the poor and to the weak. And yes, Old Covenant believers could see a promise of the Messiah. But how to distinguish that from Solomon? How to distinguish that from that literal rule over the nations that they anticipated under a glorious son of David, who, like David, would conquer the surrounding nations and bring them under submission? Those things were not clear to them. We make a distinction between revelation and illumination, but furthermore, and more significantly as to the point here, the revelation of the Old Testament was not so clear on the terms of this inclusion of the nations and the blessings of Abraham. It was not so clear on the nature of this unity that would take place. Verse 5 says, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit. In other words, there's a comparison here. It was made known, yes, but not as it is made known now. There's a huge difference. And that difference does concern the radical, unqualified oneness of Jew and Gentile. Together, in Christ. With This morning we read from Isaiah chapter 2 that many people will come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. We shall walk in his path. And we listen to this passage as a description of our coming to the house of God to worship. It's not obvious in the passage itself. It sounds there like people are actually going to gather to a literal Jerusalem. But we know that such prophecies as this have been fulfilled in Christ. And it speaks ultimately of that spiritual temple to which all the nations of the earth come and are united together in Christ in one body. One spiritual temple. One house. One citizenry. One family. One spiritual worship not according to the ceremonies and the sacrifices and the rituals of the Old Covenant. One sacrifice, once for all accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we're all brought near to God. One inheritance, Not an inheritance for the Jews there in Palestine where they're going to live while the church goes to heaven. There is no suggestion in the scripture of some divide between the church and the Jewish people as if God has plan A and plan B. Two different plans for the Jews and then for the church. And the church is kind of a parenthesis. Almost kind of an interruption of God's plan. There's no suggestion of that in scripture. It's a tragic error that dispensationalism sets up a wall and a divide between Jew and Gentile. Yet, as if God has different plans for the church than what He has for Israel, it's in utter conflict with the clear teaching of a passage like this that proclaims in glorious terms the unqualified oneness of Jew and Gentile. There's one covenant. There's one family. We're all children of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ. There's one inheritance, and there is one head over all who is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all in him. That's the mystery now revealed. And we've already begun to look at what I've, I've switched point two and three in the outline. And we're moving to consider, secondly, the central theme of this mystery. There's this wonderful little editorial in the the latest Banner of Truth magazine by Ian Hamilton. And the title of this article is, What is the Gospel? And he uh, poses an answer to this question in the way that probably most of us would answer that question by describing the message about the gospel and the message about Jesus Christ. And indeed, the gospel is a message and it's a, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. But a simpler, a more profound answer to the question, what is the gospel is this. The gospel is Jesus Christ. He is the good news. The good news is this gift of God, Jesus Christ. The good news is the life that is given in him. He is the life. The good news is this glorious person and the salvation which is in him, all in him. Significantly, in connection with this answer to this question, Ian Hamilton quotes John Calvin. And we think of John Calvin as the heady theologian writing his Institutes of the Christian religion that uh, we can hardly understand and think that it's kind of dry doctrine that he expounds there in his Institutes. But he quotes this paragraph of John Calvin from the Institutes. When we see, this is the quotation, when we see that the whole sum of our salvation and every single part of it are comprehended in Christ, We must beware of deriving even the minutest portion of it from any other quarter. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that he possesses it. If we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, we shall find them in his unction, strength in his government, purity in his conception, indulgence in his nativity, in which he was made like us in all respects in order that he might learn to sympathize with us. If we seek redemption, we shall find it in his passion, acquittal in his condemnation, remission of the curse in his cross, satisfaction in his sacrifice, purification in his blood, reconciliation in his descent to hell, mortification of the flesh in his sepulcher, newness of life in his resurrection, Immortality also in his resurrection. The inheritance of a celestial kingdom in his entrance into heaven. Protection, security, and the abundant supply of all blessings in his kingdom. Secure anticipation of judgment in the power of judging committed to him. And fine, since in him all kinds of blessings are treasured up, let us draw a full supply from him, And none from any other quarter. Brothers and sisters, we might even answer the question, what is the mystery that Paul speaks of? The mystery is Christ. At the heart of this mystery is Christ. It's called the mystery of Christ, verse three. It means sharing in the covenant promises in Christ, verse six. It's from God who created all things through Christ. Verse 9. God's eternal plan was accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Verse 11. And so when it comes also to the central privilege of this mystery in Christ, the privilege that Jew and Gentile, that people of all nations, all ethnicities, all cultures and language, when it comes to the center, the heart of the privilege that they all equally possess together, it's in Him. Because it's in Him we have boldness and access with confidence through faith. Access to what? To whom? To God. Access, admission into the fellowship with God in Christ, because of who he is and what he has done for all those who trust in him, whoever they may be, wherever they may come from, and they share the fellowship of this mystery. Paul's passion was to make all to share the fellowship of this mystery. And how? How does he go about it? By preaching among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's how it happens. Christ is the center of it. That leads us to consider, thirdly, the gracious ministry of this mystery that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ. That's a description of the mystery through the gospel, he adds. And then he continues, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Paul was just utterly amazed at the grace of his calling. You hear that in verse 8. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, certainly that involves the grace of his conversion as one who formerly was a persecutor, who persecuted Christians, who was responsible for their deaths, who was an enemy of Christ in his ignorance. But Christ saved him, called him unto himself. And Paul never ceased to marvel at the the grace of Christ to the, the chief of sinners. He saw himself as a pattern, giving encouragement to anyone, however deeply they had fallen, to believe in this Savior. Because if Christ saved him, he can save anyone. And he marveled at the grace of his conversion. He marveled at the grace of his commission. That not only would he be saved, but that he would be sent with this glorious message that he would be an instrument in the salvation of others to the Gentiles, to the nations, him. He was amazed at the grace that he was privileged to proclaim to all, to the praise of the glory of his grace. He was amazed at the grace of his calling. That's what made him a willing prisoner of Christ, literally. The chapter begins, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Well, he's not talking simply about the fact that he is some kind of a servant and slave of Jesus Christ. He was in prison, literally. You might say a prisoner of Rome, a prisoner of Caesar. No, no. Yeah, he was in a Roman prisoner, but he was a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Christ was his master. And Christ put him in prison for a while. And that's just fine with him. In fact, verse thirteen, he says, "Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart in my tribulation for you, which is your glory." He was willing. He was. He was happy to suffer in the service of Christ, that others might share in the grace of this mystery. He would take pleasure, as he says in in Second uh, Corinthians, he would uh, take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. That almost sounds a little bit masochistic, we might say. It shows the power of the faith at work in him. He considered it a privilege to suffer for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ in the service of this glorious message. The greatness of the message dwarfs everything else. The greatness of Christ and salvation, and the scope, the magnitude, the wonder of this salvation makes everything else inconsiderable, small. I listened to a, a, a part of a of an interview with Jordan Peterson uh, this past week. I'm I'm sure some of you know of Jordan Peterson. He's the famous or infamous uh, psychologist, a professor, I believe it was the University of Toronto, who gained notoriety because of his refusal to be forced to use uh, preferred pronouns. And that brought him into the public eye and under great public scrutiny and criticism. But his answers and his explanations were so compelling that they gained traction. And he himself developed in his thinking to the point where he seems to be moving, moving, moving more and more towards a Christian world and life view. I don't know that he's there yet. I don't I don't believe that he is there. But he says some pretty astounding things that ought to make Christians think. And I heard him say some astounding things in this interview when he was asked if he believed in God. He was asked if he was a believer. He says, in effect, I'm paraphrasing, but in effect he says, I, I can't say that. I don't say that. I try to live as if I do believe that God exists. But to really believe in God that's something that would be so transformative that I hardly dare to lay claim to that. Because to believe in God must change everything. And he considered it a rather fearful claim to believe in God because he, he was able to see the implications of that. It's just so huge. He says some interesting comments there, even in terms of loving others and caring for them in a deep way. And he says, I don't want to see them burn. Well, that sounds like someone who not only believes in God, but who believes in hell. What is it to really believe in God? What is it to really believe in heaven and hell? What is it really to see other people as progressing towards an eternal destiny of burning or bliss based on their response to Jesus Christ? Now there's a sense in which his response was profound and there's a sense in which it's proper for Christians to kind of tremble over the thought. Who am I to think that I will escape the wrath of God? What does it really mean to believe in God? How transformative that must be in my thinking and in my living. We ought to feel that. It dwarfs everything else. There's nothing trivial to life. Who really lives as if they believe in God? It's worth doing some soul searching about such basic questions in terms of how, how, how is it affecting our priorities? How is it affecting our world view? Our actions from day to day? How many people do we know that really exhibit lives that seem to show consistently that the belief in God, the belief in Jesus Christ is the controlling impulse of their actions and words? You know when you when you read the, the the life and listen to the words of the apostle Paul, you get this sense that here is someone who really believed in God. Here is someone who really believed the gospel. It was his passion. When he says, "For me to live is Christ," it's like, yeah, I can see that in Paul. When he says, "I am willing to be spent for you," yes. Read the litany of sufferings that he endured for the sake of the gospel. And listen to his attitude. He counts it a privilege. We think, yes, yeah, that's kind of like what it really is to really believe in Christ. Deeply, thoroughly, profoundly. I need more of that. Sometimes reading a Christian biography can stir us with the examples of those who who really seemed to live as those who believed in the gospel, as if it was the all-consuming, all-important thing of their life. I just finished the biography of George uh, Whitfield, the two-volume set. Forgive me if you're sick of hearing me talk about it, but it's a powerful account of the life of someone who lived in such a way as to give such a profound testimony that his all-consuming passion was Christ and to proclaim him. He died at the age of 56. I just read the account of his death, and it was estimated that during his life, he preached at the minimum of 18,000 times. At the minimum. Over a period of 31 or 2 years. That's like 12 sermons a week. He made 7 trips across the ocean to the colonies. And while there, he traversed up and down the colonies, preaching almost every day and often to thousands of people that heard George Whitfield is coming and they dropped everything and they went to hear him. And God blessed that ministry in such a profound way as to bring deep and lasting change in the colonies that he visited seven times, 15 times to Scotland, nine times to Ireland while he carried on a tremendous uh, ministry in London. It's just phenomenal. He signed his last letter, the least of all. Sometimes he'd left record in his journal of, oh, may I begin to begin to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. He literally spent himself in the service of the gospel. His last uh, sermon, well, it really wasn't his last sermon. His last public opportunity to proclaim the gospel to a multitude was a, a two-hour message. Then afterwards, he was staying in the parsonage of an old-school Presbyterian minister, exhausted, took a little bit of food, but people had gathered at the door, and they were welcomed in. And as on his way up the stairs, he stood on the stair steps with a candle in his hand, and he preached to them until the candle burned out in his hand, in effect. And uh, observers said that was like a testimony of his life, because that, that was the end of his life. He went up to bed, took a little food, Woke up early, couldn't breathe. For the past number of years, very often after preaching, he'd cough up phlegm and blood. It was killing him, but he couldn't stop. And he was invigorated by that service. It's like here is a man who was consumed by the the power of Christ, a unique person whom God raised up for a unique ministry and for a a unique purpose. The world is my parish, is what he would say. His first trip to... Uh, the colonies. He was so exhilarated with the thought of bringing the gospel there. And in his last trip, he said the same thing. He never made it to Canada. He was on his way to Canada when he died. Now that's at a unique instance. And none of us are the Apostle Paul or George Whitfield and the measure of our consecration to the Lord is not determined by public ministry or how many sermons we preach. But we all ought to recognize that believing in this gospel indeed should be transformative, shouldn't it? It should transform our lives more and more after the image of Christ in our current life situation and calling. Because it's that great. It dwarfs everything else. And if we are in Christ by faith, we have fellowship. We have a stewardship in this mystery. And we ought to then pursue also the glorious goal of this mystery. The true church of Christ is despised by the world. Jesus said to his disciples, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as not I am not of the world. And we understand why the church and the name church is despised and viewed with contempt by many unbelievers. Because there are false churches that do a great deal of harm. And they do not represent the Christian faith at all. And there are many instances in which people have had very, very bad experiences in the church. And we ought to listen to them. And we ought to sympathize with them if those bad experiences or because the church that they attended was not a Christian church. They did not teach or act like a Christian church. But at the same time, we ought also to say that if of Zion's city, I by grace a member am, let the world deride or pity. We're not embarrassed to belong to the church of Jesus Christ. Rather, we're concerned that people would see uh, the true beauty and glory of the church of Jesus Christ. We would glory in his name. The church of Jesus Christ is the great masterpiece. Purpose from eternity. And it's a purpose that concerns the whole universe. In verse 10 we read that to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. To the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Angelic uh, powers, angels, they look into the, the, the teachings of the gospel, we're told in Peter. Angelic powers adore the wisdom of God revealed in this new creation, this new world of saved sinners, a world in which they themselves have a share because Christ reconciles all things in heaven and on earth to himself. It's interesting that we la- that we hear this language of principalities and powers also in chapter 6, where it says, put on the armor of God, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. The holy angels adore, and these wicked spirits will be confounded at the wisdom of God revealed in his church. Demonic powers will be shamed and defeated by the Lord's power. He's going to build his church despite all the opposition of hell. and He's going to triumph over Satan. And He's going to include the church in that victory. The Lord will shortly, the God of peace will shortly crush Satan under your feet, Paul says in Romans 16. The church will triumph under Christ over all their enemies in whom we are more than conquerors. And God's purpose through this universal church shall not fail. To skip ahead a little bit, the chapter ends, To him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. If the Lord Jesus is pleased to tarry for another thousand years, the truth of this passage will stand. There will be a church of Jesus Christ in which God will be glorified we're part of this vast, this vast plan, this masterpiece of God's wisdom and power and grace, revealing his beloved son and sharing the knowledge of his glory with poor saved sinners as we are. And so, so see the church, so judge the church by faith, not by the sins that remain in the best of her members, not by the hypocrites that are always mixed in within her, but see now and live by faith and feel your privilege to be a part of it and give glory to God for it. Amen.